Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Freedom and morality are two interrelated concepts that, let's face it, everyone has an opinion about. From a Christian perspective, we limit our freedom based on our received moral code. We believe that the restrictions the Bible provides us are for our good. They are not the result of a capricious deity's arbitrary or stifling whims. In fact, we believe that the limits God places on our freedom lead to the best human flourishing available in our fallen world. After thinking through Christian freedom, we'll delve into much more important question of moral motivation. Most people believe in right and wrong, of course, but many of us lack the drive to choose the good over the convenient or self-serving course of action. In this episode, we'll survey some of the popular moral systems out there, including classic systems such as virtue ethics, categorical imperatives, and utilitarianism, as well as religious systems, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. Although we'll only scratch the surface, I hope you'll find this approach useful when conversing with people who call into question your Christian moral commitments. Here now is episode 396, part 9 of our Why Christianity class, Christian Freedom and Morality. Tonight, I want to begin by talking about freedom. And whenever the word freedom comes up, I have this memory from the 90s when Mel Gibson played Braveheart fighting for Scotland's independence. It's about like all I know about Scottish history is what Hollywood taught me. So uh, there's this amazing battle scene in this, in this movie. Probably wasn't historical, but I don't care. It makes the point just so well where William Wallace comes in and says, I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What would you do without freedom? Will you fight? And then a veteran soldier pipes up and says, Fight against that? The army they're facing is way bigger. (laughs) No, we will run, and we will live. And then this is the epic moment in the... uh, the the whole movie where Wallace says, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. And everybody cheers and then they go, they march and they fight the battle. Just gives me chills even thinking about it, right? I mean, we love freedom in the United States, right? Freedom is, is a good thing. It's our uh, Statue of Liberty stands for freedom. It's autonomy, independence, liberty, self-determination. And yet freedom even today has become really an ultimate good in, in some senses. It's become the last heroic story we have left. Postmodernism, the acid of postmodernism has has wasted away really all the other his, uh, heroic narratives and left for us only the one of uh, self-discovery and, and freedom. It's the baseline cultural narrative today. But there's, a, there's also a dark side to freedom. There's a really dark side to freedom. In August 
12, 2017, six white supremacists beat protester DeAndre Harris in Charlottesville, Virginia with metal pipes. He suffered an injured knee, a fractured wrist, a spinal injury, a laceration in his head, and was repeatedly knocked unconscious. Later that day, during the Unite the Right rally, protesters arrived with Confederate flags, a Nazi flag, sticks, clubs, body armor, and semi-automatic weapons. Approximately 500 protesters and over 1,000 counter-protesters shouted at each other and threw things at each other. 14 people were injured in street fighting. At 1.45 p.m., a man drove his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, injuring 19 and killing one. And then later that same afternoon, a Virginia State Police helicopter monitoring the riot suddenly crashed seven miles from the airport, killing two state troopers. Uh, so here's the question, just looking at that one incident in, from recent history, what happens when freedoms collide? I mean, can we say that those white supremacists who beat up that man, that they were expressing their freedom? Yeah, they were. They were being true to themselves. They were authentic in their racism. <laughs> but that's, the, that's a problem, isn't it? So what does that tell us? That when one person wants to use his or her freedom to hurt someone else, we have to limit that freedom. Actually, we do have a place for people who always just express themselves freely. It's called jail. <laughs> if you insist on expressing your freedom at all times, in all situations, as a society, what we do is we take away your freedom and we put you in jail. So what I'm saying to you is freedom can be more like an illusion where you think you're pursuing something that's, go that's going to be this great thing, but in reality, it can cause oppression. It can cause lots of problems. So in Christianity, the way that we understand freedom, the way we understand morality, is that Jesus gives us this really simple, just boiling it all down to two main principles. And we find this in Mark 12, 29, where Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first one is God, and the second one is your neighbor. There is no other commandment greater than these. So that's a really simple explanation for morality. I mean, obviously, there are situations where it can be more complicated or, or it can get complicated. You can ask the question, well, what does it mean to love in this situation? But this is, these are the guiding posts or uh, the guiding principles for Christian morality. Love God, love people. So that will help you avoid beating people with metal pipes, right? Because it's not loving to beat somebody with a metal pipe or uh, other kinds of activities that would be hurting people. But it's stronger than that. It's not just don't hurt people. It's work for their good, act for their good, which is what love is. So then we get to the second question. And this is a question that I'm interested in. I'm not as interested in the question of what does it mean to be moral or what is the right thing or the wrong thing in a situation. I think by and large, most situations are pretty easy to understand. And we generally know the difference between right and wrong, generally. I mean, obviously, there's some cases where it's complicated. But the question that I'm really interested in is, uh, why? Why should I do the right thing? 
Uh, and I think Christianity provides an excellent answer to that, actually a, a very multidimensional answer to that. And so what I found is five biblical reasons to do the right thing. The first up is the fear of God. The second is duty. Then personal or communal benefit slash detriment. That's basically the idea of self-interest. That there are some situations that if you do the right thing, it'll go well for you or your community. Number four is love. And then number five is the prophetic witness, which uh, I get all excited about that one. But what I want to do then is uh, look at each one of these five biblical reasons. I've got just a verse or two on each. Obviously, I can't be thorough. I've got 23 minutes left, and I want to get through these five points. And then I want to look at the main competitors to Christianity, including Islam, Hinduism, atheism, Buddhism, and look at how they talk about morality, how they think about the question of motivation, like why should I do the right thing, and uh, show you how Christianity is different from all other world religions and uh, worldviews on this, on this subject, and uh, I'll give you a little answer ahead of time, a little cheat or a little hint. It has to do with Jesus, because as Christians, we're the only ones that have Jesus, okay? So we'll get to that in just a minute. But here, here are five biblical reasons to do the right thing. There could be more. These are just the ones that, that I have uh, found in my research. Uh, so first up is uh, fearing God. We find this in Deuteronomy 6 where it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. So you see how it works there? The commandment is that they're going into this land, he wants them to fear him. Moses is speaking. He wants them to fear God by keeping all his commandments. Uh, sometimes people in our cultural moment today will look on this negatively and say, oh, that's fear-based obedience. Well, yes, it is, uh, but uh, not to give too much away about my home life, but I just used this strategy not even an hour ago on one of my kids, and it it was the most effective way to deal with that situation. There is such a thing as having love and fear at the same time. So God has commanded it. This is it's really simple. God has commanded it. God has authority. So we obey. That's one basic sense of motivation for doing the right thing. All right, number two is this idea of duty. We find that in the last couple of verses of Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. It's what we're expected to do. It's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to do His commandments, to keep His commandments. Or, if you want a New Testament version of it, Luke 17, 10, Jesus says, So also when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Uh, and so this is the idea that it's my responsibility to do the right thing, so I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, it's, it's, I'm going I'm to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> right? It's just a simple duty-based principle. Then we get to number three, which is the whole idea of self-interest. Right, And so we see in Psalm 7, you find this a lot in the Proverbs too. Psalm 7, 14 says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. 
He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Right? So this is the idea of bad th- you do bad things, and then bad things happen. So this is the whole idea of self-interest, that you should, you should do the right thing, because if you do the wrong thing, bad things many times will happen. Those are what we call consequences. Look at Galatians 6 here, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So this is a basic principle, right? That what goes around comes around us. That's how we say it today. Or the Hindus have a more elaborate system called karma, but it's a similar idea. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap eternal life. So life works better when you do the right thing. Sin is poisonous. You can drink it. Uh, It might even taste good going down, but it's bitter in your belly. And you also feel guilty after you, after you do the wrong thing, right? So uh, there, there is a fruit to righteousness and a fruit, a rotten fruit, to uh, doing, practicing unrighteousness. So that's another reason to do the right thing within, within the Bible. Uh, then we have number four here, which is uh, probably the one that we would go to most often and is most often preached, and that is the idea of a love response to God. And uh, 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God has done so much for us, we, we should feel overwhelmed with gratitude and thankfulness, and, and then therefore want to serve God and do what He says is right. Uh, and this is the idea of a relationship. This is a very relational way of thinking about it. If you're in a relationship with somebody, what do you want to do? You want to find out, well, what is this person like? What kind of things do they like to do? And then you want to do those things with them, right? And you want to give them maybe a present, but, uh, you know, you wouldn't give, say, uh, you know, somebody that you, that you know doesn't like bowling, you wouldn't give them a bowling ball because that's not really something that delights them, right? So you want to do the work to find out, okay, well, what does this person like? And then you, uh, it, you, you joy in delighting your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, you know, the, the person you're in a relationship, or a friend. So if God so loves us, we should be motivated by that love to love him back. And the chief way we do that is through obedience. And then number five is the prophetic witness. This is from 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more the matters pertaining to this life? So what was going on here in Corinth is they were suing each other, and, and Paul found out about it, and he said, you guys are going to run the world. You can't figure this out? Come on. You don't have one wise person in your whole group that could make a decision between who's right and who's wrong. You're going to go to the pagans and have them in their law court figure out who's right and who's wrong. It doesn't make any sense. So this is the idea. This is a negative example, but a positive example is what will the world to come be like and how can I live that way now uh, in, in a positive way? I do the right thing as a testimony 
of the coming kingdom. So this is the idea that your life is a prophetic witness of the age to come. I want others to see how I live so that they will be attracted to the faith. My actions prophesy God's dream for this world. So this is another motivation for doing the right thing. All right. So now that we've looked at five aspects of what, you know, and I'm sure there are probably more within the Bible itself and within Christianity. Now let's see, how do other people think about this subject, about freedom, about morality in particular? And so what I want to do is look at a number of those. First up, we have atheism. Uh, so atheism doesn't believe in God by definition. So they have to find a system of ethics, a system of right and wrong, apart from God's existence. Uh, and that doesn't mean that all these people are atheists here, but they're, they're people who have developed systems which atheists then can use. So you have the first one up is virtue ethics, and that was pioneered by Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher who did believe in God. But uh, that's the idea that uh, you should develop your character, a virtuous character, over time, so that when you're in a situation, you will do the right thing, right? So you, you want to always be developing your virtue. Uh, but there are some problems with this. Without God, how do we even know what a virtue or a vice is? How do we, how do we judge between virtues and vices? You know, one, one person says it's this, another person says it's that. We could say it's, it's self-evident, but somebody else could say, well, it's not self-evident to me. I grew up in a different culture where we have a different set of rights and wrongs. So there's a difficulty there not having a standard. Now, Aristotle believed in God, so he could just derive the principle right from God's existence. Then you have the deontological ethics. This is duty-based ethics, which Christianity also has. I mean, it's not like these things are distinctly atheistic. It's just these are systems that uh, atheists have developed in a certain direction. So deontological ethics is the idea that you do the right thing because it's the right thing. It's a duty. And the most famous person who talks about that was Immanuel Kant, who has this idea of the categorical imperative. You can impress your friends with that one. Categorical imperative. And that's basically the idea that you should act in accordance with that maxim through which you can at the same time will that it become a universal law. So the idea there is why should you tell the truth, Bill? Well, you, Bill should tell the truth because it's a universal truth that everyone should tell the truth, so Bill should tell the truth. It's a categorical imperative. It works in, as a universalizable principle. You could exclude bad behavior on the basis of, uh, well, that, that wouldn't work if everybody did that, right? So like if Dan steals from the store, well... We wouldn't have stores anymore if everyone stole from the store, so therefore stealing from the store is wrong. So that's this whole concept of Immanuel Kant. Uh, but this has some problems too. I mean, who, who lays this duty on us? Why should I do that? Why should I always do the thing that works for everyone? Why shouldn't I just be selfish, right? There, there's, uh, there's no God, there's no one in my society that has authority to tell me that I have to do this all the time. Why shouldn't I just act for what's good for me? And that brings us to the last one here, the teleological ethics. Uh, John Stuart Mill, I put as an example of that. This is the idea of looking at the consequences. This uh, system is also called consequentialism or uh, utilitarianism. And that's the idea that an action is morally right if the consequences of the action are more favorable than unfavorable to everyone. Uh, so that's utilitarian ethics, the idea that the greatest good for the greatest number, 
is always the right thing. So the, the, you might actually do a bad thing, but if it has a good result for most people, then it's considered the right thing. Uh, so that's very, very much in contrast to, to virtue ethics and deontological ethics. So, but how do you know what is the greatest good without some sort of standard to figure that out? And why should I always put others ahead of myself? So let, let, let's think of the, the life raft example. Let's say there's a heavy person in a life raft, and uh, then there are, are two lighter people. So does that mean that we should pick up the heavier person and throw them overboard to save the two lighter people? Now, what if those lighter people are also uh, serial criminals? You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you really figure this thing out? <laughs> there are some, some real moral quandaries there, and you can easily justify moral outrages. The, uh, the best example of the problems with utilitarian ethics is the TV show 24, if you ever saw that back in the day, Jack Bauer. I mean, he's always in a situation where he has to do a bad thing for a good reason, and uh, he's killing people and cutting off limbs left and right, and it's just like, wow, this is not a good ethical principle. All right, so that's, that's atheism. Let's look at some of these other isms. We have Hinduism. How do they handle right and wrong? Well, there's karma, right? What goes around comes around. And karma's not bad. It's, it's like Jesus' uh, golden rule. As Dale Tuggy says, world religions don't get to be world religions if they don't have anything useful and helpful in them, right? So Jesus' golden rule is in Matthew 7, 12. It's whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, right? That's the golden rule of Jesus. So karma is, is pretty similar to that, but it, it's all tangled up with this idea of the life cycle, where you have life, death, and rebirth, so that if you're good, then good will happen to you, either in this life or in the next. But there are some problems with this, too. First of all, there's no evidence that rebirth actually happens, and that's because you don't retain any memories from your previous life, apparently, unless you have a different experience than I do. I, I'll just speak for myself. I have no memories of any previous lives. Uh, so uh, for me, there's no meaningful sense in which I have experienced a rebirth. So if I get, let's say I have, uh, let's say I just, I'm just a lousy person and I just like make fun of handicapped people and I cheat and I lie and I commit adultery and I just have a wonderful life. Right? Just good things keep, I'm, I'm a rotten scoundrel and good things keep happening to me. I get promotions at work and I win the lottery and just everything good happens to me. I end up with like a, a spouse that just forgives everything I do no matter how bad I am, you know, and I die a happy person, right? So how does Hinduism deal with that? They say, well, in your next life, you're going to have some bad karma, right? So th then you're going to have, you're going to be like a lower level person in the, in the world, maybe an animal, Maybe you come back as an animal. You know, it's, that's even worse. Um, and then uh, look on the flip side. <laughs> look on the, so think about the moral motivation for that. You know that it's, you know, it's, it's the next life. You're like, I'll worry about that in the next life. I'm enjoying this life now, right? So you can excuse a lot of moral misbehavior. Or on the flip side of it, let's say bad things keep happening to you. You say, well, why should I do good? Because you know, I'm not going to benefit from that now anyhow. So this can end up degenerating into blaming the victim. You know, if somebody has real tragedy happen to them, what you say to them is, well, you must have done some really bad stuff in your previous life, <laughs> which is not, uh, not very 
compassionate, and it, and it excuses uh, justice. All right, then we have Buddhism. And again, you know, I'm just, this is just surface level. I'm sure there are much deeper understandings that are out there and that, that we could get into, but I'm just surveying here. Uh, Buddhism says life is suffering. Suffering results from cravings and desires. We must strive to eliminate these by the eightfold path. The eightfold path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Good luck writing that down. It's available on the internet. Eightfold path, believe me, it's there. And so Buddhism is all about denying yourself pleasure, denying yourself desires of your heart. It's a sort of asceticism, that's uh, the, the technical term for it, where you're always denying yourself pleasure, living without fulfilling your desires. But this really exchanges one form of suffering for another, right? I mean, the initial principle, the starting place of Buddhism is life is suffering. That's the problem. All right, so our solution is to avoid all desire and attachment. But that itself is a life of suffering, right? So I, I don't see how this necessarily fixes the, the problem, but it's certainly courageous. You know, it's, it's a very impressive lifestyle if you, if you really truly suppressed all your desires and you were just detached from everything. Then we have Islam itself. Islam has, of course, five pillars. And there are a lot of similarities between Islam and Christianity. Uh, I've just been reading the Quran over the last couple of days, and it's like amazing how many, how many tie-ins to the Bible the Quran has in there, you know, like direct references back to biblical situations that happened. Islam has the creation. You remember the, the four main stages of the Christian uh, meta-narrative? You have creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? So Islam has creation, right? They believe God created the world, very similar to the way Christians and Jews do. Then they have a fall as well. They have Adam and Eve and a fall. And then they also have restoration. That's this Yam al-Qiyamah, which is a day of resurrection and judgment. And you earn your salvation, essentially. You, you do more good deeds than bad deeds, and this is not an idea that's unique to Islam. A lot, a lot of religions, you know, even karma, if you think about it, is works-based salvation, isn't it? You live well, and then you get the better afterlife as a result of it. Now, here's, here's what's interesting. Christianity diverges from all these isms on exactly this point. You notice I said Christianity has creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and then I said, well, Islam has creation, fall, hmm, restoration. What's the hmm? Redemption! They don't have Jesus. Hindus don't have Jesus. Buddhists don't have Jesus. And atheists sure don't have Jesus. So why is Jesus so great? I thought Tim Keller really put it well. Uh, this is a quote from a, a talk he gave at Google on his book, Reason for God. He says, there are two basic ways of thinking about your self-image. One is what I'm going to call a moral performance narrative. So that's, that's a key term right there, moral performance narrative. A moral performance narrative says, I'm okay, I'm a good person, I feel significant, and I have worth because I'm achieving something. So if you're a liberal person and you feel like, well, I'm a good person because I'm working for the poor, working for human rights, and I'm open-minded, you can't help in a moral performance narrative where your self-image is based on your performance as a generous liberal activist person. You can't help but look down your nose at bigots. You can't help but feel superior to bigots. 
On the other hand, what if you're a traditional religious person and you go to church, you read your Bible, you go to synagogue, you read your Bible, or you go to the mosque and you read the Quran? You're working hard to feel good and serve God. Now, in that case, you have to look down your nose at people who don't believe in your religion. They're just not being as good as you are. Maybe you're just a secular person. You're a hardworking, decent chap. You can't help it if your self-image is based on the fact that you're a hardworking, decent chap. You can't help but look down your nose at people who are lazy. But the gospel, the gospel is something different. The gospel says Jesus Christ comes and saves you. The gospel says you're a sinner. The gospel says you don't live up to your own standards. The gospel says there's no way you're going to live up to your own standards. The gospel says you have failed. You are a moral failure. This is the good part of it. And salvation only belongs to people who admit their moral failures. Jesus came in weakness and died on the cross. He says that salvation is only for weak people. It is only for people who admit they're not better than anyone else, and they just need mercy. If you have a grace narrative, so this is the distinctly Christian idea here, if you say, the reason I can look myself in the mirror, the reason I know I have significance is because Jesus died for me. I am a sinner saved by grace. If you say that, then you can't feel superior to anybody. I've got a Hindu neighbor in my apartment building, and I think he's wrong about many things, but he probably is a better father than me. He could be a much better man. Why? Aren't you a Christian and he's a Hindu? Don't you think you have the truth? Yeah, but here's the truth. The truth is I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved because I'm a better man. I'm saved because I'm a worse man, really. That distinctive mindset that says I can't save myself. My hands are dirty. I cannot clean myself. Sin has infected me. I need some, someone from outside to, to heal me, to bring salvation to me. That is distinctly Christian. That is a distinctly cross-shaped idea that God, through his mercy, sent his son to die for our sins so that our sins could be washed away. But then the question comes in, okay, Mr. Christian, salvation is by grace, by faith alone, so what's the point in doing the right thing? What's the point of morality? You're saved apart from morals, right? So there's the rub, right? Well, it's interesting. The way we think about morality is different. The way we think about morality then is not that it's for salvation, but that it's post, it's after salvation. It says, now that we've been saved, what have we been saved to? To live a different way. And so what we believe is that God has given us boundaries for our good. And it's just like a tomato plant. I love this analogy. You have a, a natural tomato plant. It grows those big tomatoes, and what happens? The branch gets heavy. Some of those tomatoes rest in the soil, and before long, you got rotten tomatoes. And then, if you take that same plant and you stake it, restricting its freedom, what does it do? It produces way more. And they're not rotten, because they're not on the ground. So this is a good analogy for us to think about morals. Why does God give us morals? Why does he give us certain things that are right and wrong, certain kinds of principles to live by? Why does he do that? It's because he's, the, he's our designer. He made us, and he knows in which ways, in which restrictions, and which other freedoms humans best flourish. And so he knows best, and we trust that he's a loving father, and that he knows what he's doing. And then we obey 
him, and we obey him for all different kinds of reasons. I did a Facebook survey. I got more answers than I could shake a stick at. It's just this one said this, this one said that. People have all different kinds of reasons. But there's only one gospel, and that is the gospel that saves us. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to come online and leave your thoughts on freedom or morality from a Christian perspective or ask your questions, come on to episode 396, Why Christianity Part 9, Christian Freedom and Morality. We'd love to hear from you on this really fascinating topic. Also, just wanted to let you know that the UCA, that's the Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference, is now scheduled for October 15th to the 17th, 2021. That's going to be in Tennessee, just north of Nashville. And this is going to be the inaugural event. We're hoping for a really great turnout. We have a number of speakers scheduled, and we are firming up the rest of the the details with that, and we're hoping to have registration open soon. But I just wanted to give you that date so you could put it on your calendar. Probably most of you have already booked out the summer and are into the fall with your calendar. So please write in October 15th to the 17th, UCA Con, first one ever. There will never be another first UCA conference. So please come. It'd be a great time to hang out too during the meals and outside of the conference as well. So I'll give you more information about that as it draws nearer, Uh, but just a little teaser about what I'm thinking about presenting at the conference is the subject is on the subject of subordinationism and looking at the inequality between the father and the son and exploring that from a biblical and church history point of view. And it was interesting because I had asked the question on a very popular Facebook group, why do people believe in the co-equality of the Father and the Son? And I was surprised that um, the only text anyone brought up was Philippians 2. And uh, considering that this is such a disputed text, and that ontology, unless you're reading the NIV, is almost certainly not in view, that expresses the weakness of the evangelical case. Uh, of course, I think they do have some other texts on the equality side, maybe John 5, John 10, uh, but those are easy to handle within their own context. So stay tuned for more on that. I'm in the research phase right now, but hoping to have something really polished by the time October comes around. And it's always good to get into the journal articles and the technical monographs and so on to do this kind of research, which I, I tend to do one project a year like this because of my pastoral responsibilities. A lot of what I do is very practical, very pragmatic and administrative, but I do get to do one scholarly article a year. And uh, so I'm just so excited to delve into that world once again. Thanks everyone for listening in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can donate at restitutio.org. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.